resilience is a multifactorial endeavor. If you just focus on people's personal qualities, you will be able to develop resilience to some extent, but probably not a huge amount. Hi, and welcome to another episode of 80% Mental, the greatest podcast ever made, maybe. Uh, I'm Dr. Pete Olishaga, and I'm joined as ever by Hugh Gilmore. Hugh, it's just um, it's just occurred to me that um, it's been a while since you've actually said anything about us. Cool. So if people haven't listened to the trailer, or if they haven't listened to the intro episode, then they've no idea who we are. That's a good point, Pete. Who are you? Well, I, I would rather people just went and listened. I can't be bothered to do intro, so I'd rather people just went and listened to the trailer episode, to be honest. Okay, so fundamentally, we've got lazy lazy hosts for the podcast. I don't think we're the greatest uh, podcast uh, on sports psychology. I think we might be the most resilient podcast on sports psychology because of the amount of technical difficulties we've had with a certain company that rhymes with <coughs> Gencaster. Um but yeah, I think we're resilient. What do you think about that? Um, well, it's funny that you should mention resilience. It's almost like you knew in advance that that's what today's topic was going to be about. So we're going to get on with it and we're going to introduce our guests. And as usual, we're starting with a question about a topic in sport and performance psych. And Hugh has teed that up nicely because today's question is related to a topic that I think it's probably fair to say that it's become one of psychology's, well, probably sports psychology anyway, one of psychology's buzzwords over the last few years. So today we're asking, what's the big fuss about resilience? And to help us talk through all things resilience, we've managed to again snag a couple of fantastic guests. So first up, we've got Dr. Resilience himself. That's your new name, Mus, by the way. My worst superhero ever. Um, we have Dr. Mustafa Sarka, who is an associate professor of sport and performance psychology at Nottingham Trent University. His research focuses on individual, team, and organizational resilience in elite sport and other high performance domains like business. Uh, Mustafa is also a chartered psychologist and works closely with teams and organizations on creating environments and cultures to develop resilience and ultimately enable uh, sustained success and well-being. Um, Mustafa, you've uh, you, you've cornered the market, I suppose, a little bit with your research on resilience. We'll we'll talk about that a bit later on. But w what was it that drew you to that as a topic? Uh, firstly, thanks, uh, Pete and Hugh, for the uh, for the invite and for the introduction. Really looking forward to the conversation. Um, yeah, I guess there were there were two main. Uh, two main factors that drove me into kind of studying resilience. Uh, firstly, on a personal level, um, was an aspiring elite cricketer kind of growing up um, and was technically and tactically really, really good at my sport, uh, but really, really struggled psychologically. Um, and yeah, just was really interested in terms of what enabled some athletes to uh, perform under pressure and achieve optimal performances whereas others like myself uh, succumb to the demands and underperform. So I guess from a, from a personal level, just really interested in, um, in that and from my own kind of sporting journey and experiences. And then from a research point of view, um, really interestingly, up until, so I did my, my master's in 2010 and my PhD um, in 2000 and or started my PhD in 2011, um, there hadn't been that much research on resilience in sport. 
So there'd been lots and lots of research in resilience in, in general psychology, particularly around how people react and respond to some really quite traumatic events, things like terrorism, natural disasters, serious illnesses. But in the context of sport and in the context of performance where individuals are not forced, so to speak, to react to traumatic events, but actively choose to put themselves in challenging situations. It was only, I think, 2008, from what I can remember, Guardian Vili 2008 was the first published research uh, peer-reviewed paper on resilience in sport. So I think for me, it was a combination of those kind of two things was the personal journey around uh, my own sporting experiences, but also my academic journey uh, and, and wanting to do a project where I felt I could offer a good, good contribution. Well, we are thrilled to have you and really looking forward to hearing your insights uh, on the topic. So welcome to 80% Mental. Thank you, Pete. Uh, and, and joining us, I'm uh, really, really pleased to be able to introduce Wendy Searle. Now, if you don't know who Wendy Searle is, in 2020, she became only the seventh woman in history to ski solo, unsupported, from Hercules Inlet to the geographic South Pole. She describes herself as ordinary, having an office job and four children. But Wendy, I'd argue that skiing over 700 miles to the South Pole entirely or on your own is anything but ordinary. Um, I, I followed the journey on Instagram. Uh, Wendy and I met shortly before she set off uh, to the South Pole on, the, on that trip. Um, yeah, I, I was inspired. Can you tell us just a little bit about what the trip was like? Thanks so much, Pete. Wow, what an intro. So yeah, I set off on the 27th of November in, tw in 2019 and skied on my own with all my kit and equipment in a in a special sled called a Polk. And I spent all the time, 11, 12 hours a day, skiing uphill into wind. And that was my that was my entire day, every single day for 42 days. And the actual journey for me started more like five years before that, because it took, I, I was somebody with no experience, I could barely ski, I didn't have any money, I didn't have any um, time off work or anything like that. And actually, the journey for me was more like five years and 42 days. So it was, um, it was a monumental uh, challenge to tick all the boxes that were required to get to a point where you could actually be dropped off in the middle of nowhere by this tiny ski plane, and then, you know, survive navigate keep yourself you know fit and well and and then ski into pole successfully Hugh I think we've uh we've hit the ball out of the park with our guests again haven't we yeah I uh I'm very excited Pete I I first of all I'm blown away that it's uphill to the south pole I would have thought like <laughs> I would have thought you that know sounds wrong, doesn't it because we're going south it should be downhill <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then the fact that there was Instagram capabilities in the way there, like it's it's just amazing. And most I didn't know you were a cricketer, um, and that's that's kind of funny because if I hadn't known you're a cricketer, I wouldn't have invited you on because I don't really like cricket. But I'm sure you'll be resilient with with, with the judgment of your sport going forward. <laughs> Pete. Well, I've I've uh, I, I've just realised that I called your uh, Wendy your solo expedition to the South Pole a trip, as if it was like a bunch <laughs> yeah. of eleven-year-olds going up in towers or something. Um, so <laughs> apologies for that. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on resilience as well from from your perspective. Uh, so welcome, welcome to Eighty Percent Mental. 
Should we get on with it? Mm. Let's get on with it. Um, Wendy, I'm going to come to you first, actually. Obviously, we heard about some of your experiences uh, in the intro there, and I, I really want to hear your thoughts on the topic. If I gave you 10 seconds, how would you define resilience? Oh, wow. So I think there's it's handfuls of several different things. But for me, what's worked for me and how I look at resilience is that I have a healthy dose of optimism. I always think tomorrow is going to be a better day, even when it's, you know, three solid days of whiteout skiing into nothingness. And as well as that, maybe some equanimity. So, you know, you can't really do anything about the weather, you know, what other people are doing, um, you know, conditions or or any of those things. You can only control what, what you can physically and mentally control. So trying to just accept what, what was and and getting on with the day, I think that that is really uh, a, a big part of it. Um, some flexibility, which is a bit like equanimity, I think, um, and a bit of drive and self-belief. And that's a really interesting one because I don't think I truly believed that I was going to make it to Poland until I saw the South Pole Station, with, you know, nine um, nautical miles out from Pole. Um, but actually, it, the success of that trip has definitely changed how I see myself. So, um, yeah, was, that was a bit longer than 10 seconds. <laughs> Well, I mean, please carry on, you know, if you, if you, if you have anything else, I guess, um, you know, what, what it really means to you. You talked about a couple of things there, didn't you? The flexibility, the optimism, um, there's a, a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, and I think some of the things that, that you draw on, and I think what's interesting, actually, looking at um, what Mustafa said about, about being an elite cricketer, and, and he said, he actually said failing at it, which I'm not sure, you know, perhaps we can dig into that a bit, but um, I'm <laughs> sort of adventure expeditions resilience if you like from from a completely different angle I came to it very late late in life I'd kind of done a bit of running I'd done a bit of um uh you know a few sort of camps out nothing really and then to do this this massive journey but I had loads of tools of you know life experience almost that you would use you know if you kind of if you leave a job or you fail your driving test and you have some of those skills to draw on if you're if you're that bit older, I think. Must hmm. Doctor Resilience, um, listening to to Wendy speak there about what resilience is and what it means to her from the perspective of of someone who's achieved something like incredible under really difficult circumstances, you know, it's a topic that you've studied as a researcher for a long time. What, what are your thoughts? What do you, what do you make of uh, of what Wendy's saying, and what does the research tell us? Yeah, I think um, in terms of what men, uh, Wendy mentioned, um, it certainly resonates in terms of some of the characters. So we, we did a study looking at resilience in, in high achievers across a range of different kind of contexts, whether that was in sport or in business or uh, politics, education. Some of the characteristics that Wendy mentioned were kind of have come up in some of that research. So some of the, the personality characteristics around optimism. I'm, I'm really glad that actually Wendy mentioned healthy dose because I think there is a there is also an element where you can have unrealistic optimism, and I think a lot of the research we've done kind of suggests that it's actually what you might call realistic optimism, which is and again I think that's what Wendy mentioned about those healthy doses being really important. Um, the sense of control comes up up and again um, loads of times in terms of of, of resilience. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of self-belief and, and confidence certainly comes through as well. The one, the one thing I would say um, is that from what Wendy mentioned, for me, those are what I would might call protective factors or, or characteristics 
um, of someone who might demonstrate resilience. Um, for me, if, you, if, we, if we strip resilience back to its very, very simplest sense, it's, it's the ability to withstand pressure or the ability to maintain functioning when you're under pressure. Ultimately, that's the essence. But then the characteristics that then form under that then are other things that obviously Wendy mentioned. I'm I'm curious. the The topic, uh, the word there, equanimity, was mentioned, and I'd be keen to know what you make of that uh, as how that was played out for you, Wendy. But also, must how does equanimity relate to uh, your understanding of, of resilience? And also, can can somebody actually tell me what equanimity means? Because I'm a bit lost in that one uh, for people like me with not the big word book beside them. I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means acceptance of things how they are. So if the weather's bad, that's just how it is. If if something happens, you have to adapt and accept. Would you agree with that, Muz? Yeah, for my for my, my I've got a, a limited base knowledge of uh, uh, the term. Um, but yeah, in terms of sense of control, certainly that certainly come through in terms of certain situations, certain circumstances that are not not in our control. Um, but then we are we are in our control in terms of our ability to react and respond. So uh, certainly that features in terms of some of the work that we've done around around resilience and, and particularly around developing resilience for sure. I mean, resilience is one of those terms that's seen as pretty much universally positive. It's something that we should strive to be. And we, we've kind of touched on that already. We'll come back to this a little bit later on in the episode. Um, but I, I suppose rather than talking about what resilience is, maybe the more interesting question is what does being resilient actually allow you to do? And I wonder if you can perhaps give any, any examples uh, of when you've drawn on what you consider to be resilience. Um, and, and again, I'll go with Wendy first, because you, you touched upon some of these examples earlier on. I think I would talk about an example from the trip where, oh, there you go, I called it a trip, an example from the expedition <laughs> where it's relentless. So you're skiing all day long. You're just, in, and it's just putting one ski in front of the other for hours and hours and hours. And then I'd finished skiing for the day and, and because I'd made enough mileage or I'd done done the hours that I wanted to. And I'd be putting my tent up on my hands and knees because I was just absolutely done. I had absolutely nothing left. And I'd sort of fall into my tent and get the cooker on and just be so glad to be inside in some shelter, some eating something warm and getting into a nice cozy sleeping bag. And I had absolutely no idea how the hell I was going to get up and do it all again the next day. And the mornings were the worst. So for about four days into the exhibition, I was fine. And then for the next three weeks, every single morning, I was crying, thinking, this is absolutely horrendous. Uh, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I just want it to be over. And then somehow I'd make myself, and this is what the sort of the sort of bit that is is interesting, I guess, that I'd make myself get get dressed get out of the tent and get skiing and somehow when you're doing when when I made that hurdle I was then skiing towards the next campsite I was skiing towards my next sanctuary if you like and then it was fine again but it was that it was that time between sort of waking up and thinking oh my goodness I'm still here and I've still got weeks and weeks and weeks to go and I'm not a very patient person either and uh, what what actually kind of drove me I mean I, I had never actually said to myself in so many words I'm not I'm not gonna call for help but it would it would have been easy to just ring the logistics company and say I've had enough come and pick me up but I'd said in, in hindsight I'd 
I had it in my head that I was absolutely, unless it was a medical safety issue, I was not going to call for help. I was just going to have to, you know, continue each day. And I, I, I wonder a little bit about the children thing because having kids is really hard work. It's super relentless. You don't get a lot of sleep. And I think that gave me quite a lot to draw on of, you know, you've just got to keep going because your job now, your job is to ski south and you've just got to keep skiing south. And so, yeah, I think I think the life experience of all the sort of my cumulative life experience certainly helped with that. Yeah, I mean, I have one child and, and that's hard enough. So I can't imagine what it's like with four. But uh, I, I think it's, it's really interesting what you were saying uh, just then and a little bit earlier that, you know, it wasn't until you actually saw the South Pole that you really genuinely believed that you were going to get there. So it's almost like that every day having to get up and, and kind of keep going, even though that sort of self-doubt is in your in your mind. And I guess resilience plays a, a kind of big part in that. Like it was a lot of, there was a lot of time when there was, a, there was that voice in my head that said, you know, the, who do you think you are trying to do this? What you have no experience, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not going to succeed. And that, they just want to see you fail. And I had, to, I, I, you know, must well probably have something to say about that because I have no idea who they were. In fact, everybody <laughs> I ever spoke to said, you know, you're going to smash it. You're amazing. You're inspiring. And I didn't really believe any of those things. So it's like trying to counter always those negative thoughts that are in the back of your head that you're going to mess up. Most, do you want to take that? Yeah, I can take that. I'm not. I'm not going to be able to top that in terms of an example. So I'm not even going to try with it with an, with another example. But in terms of just trying to, I guess, interpret that or just to to, to touch upon that. I guess for me, you asked Pete about how does re- kind of resilience play out, and in terms of what Wendy's just mentioned there, for me, it's about how um, you know someone who might demonstrate resilience is able to um, manage their thoughts, feelings, and behaviours ultimately. Um, and certainly for me, I, I, ma- I make the point that for me, resilience is not about it's not about positive thinking. It's not just about on, you know, being wishfully uh, optimistic or just wishfully positive, but it's about the ability to look at a situation, reframe it. And again, even when you reframe it, it's not necessarily always in a positive light. And, you know, you are going to have self-doubts, as, as Wendy's just mentioned there herself. Uh, but it's being able to take that situation and potentially just see it in a slightly different light, see it in a different uh, context or see it in a different kind of uh, way or format. So for me, that's, I think, and ultimately where resilience plays out is the ability to to have that self-awareness of your thoughts, feelings and behaviours. Um, and ultimately that leading to hopefully high levels of performance, but also high levels of well-being as well. So I'm I'm curious because you work across like multiple domains. So it's not just in sport. You said you do a lot of work in business. I believe if you've done stuff for the military as well, is that right? Um, I've drawn on some of the work in the military, but no, oh, not right. not directly in yeah. the military. But you you worked across different contexts, and 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 again, I wonder, you know, like in a business context, for example, what does resilience? What's the end goal? If you're kind of teaching people how to develop resilience, what are you hoping that they'll be able to do as a result of of kind of developing that? Yeah, I guess for me, and, and this is where we, we can get into some of the the controversies, I guess, with, with resilience, is a lot of the time when we think about the end point, we think about the individual. We, we think about what can that individual achieve as a result of being more resilient. And I'm, in fact, at some stage, I want to I wanna touch upon the word resilient because it's not a phrase that I'm massively keen on. Um, mm-hmm. but, I just, just want to um, be clear. I, I'm, I just want to be clear. I'm, I'm not talking about what they can achieve. I'm talking about what, they, what they're able to do. And there's a slight difference in, in, in that, just to, just to be clear. 
Yeah, and and for me, in terms of in terms of what they're able to do, I, I guess you know, um, for me, they they're they're able to probably work a little bit. There's a perception, I think, with the resilience that it is about working harder working longer hours in, in the context of business for example working mm-hmm. harder working longer hours but actually for me resilience is about working a little bit smarter and also recognizing that actually recovery plays a really really crucial role when it comes to resilience and that's for me one of the myths i think that that's associated with resilience that it's just about pushing harder working harder being more determined without kind of giving up but actually for me resilience is also about recognizing that recovery plays a crucial role within that process um, you know, from a business point of view, people will say that, you know, um, productivity, and I know this is a bit more about what can someone can achieve, but, um, it's about productivity. You would hope as well with that recovery aspect of as well, uh, recovery aspect as well. Um, if people take resilience seriously in terms of its truest sense of the word, uh, they will also be able to have a better work-life harmony, I would argue ultimately as well, um, in terms of that self-awareness. So yeah, just a few, few ideas there. Hugh, what, what what do you think of all of this? Because obviously you work with athletes as well. Is is resilience something that you would deliberately work on, or is it like a byproduct of you teaching other skills and abilities? What, what, what do you what do you make of all of this that you're hearing so far? So at this point in the episode, we encountered a couple of technical difficulties, and we don't actually have Hugh's answer to this question. But I imagine it was a good answer. Because he was good at answers. Can I can I put a uh, can I just mention something that um, Hugh mentioned there about a resilient person? I, I, I'm going to put it out there to say there's no such thing as a resilient individual. Because for me, that suggests that resilience is a trait that you either have or you don't have. So you're either resilient or you're not resilient. And I would prefer to talk about degrees of resilience where you might have higher or lower levels of resilience depending on context and depending on time. So how someone, you know, if I use the example... So do you think that it's an innate level of resilience or do you think you can learn to be more resilient? I think there are, I think there are aspects where there are aspects, if you, if you think about personality, and again, we can have probably a whole discussion about whether or not personality is is innate or or whether or not it's developable or trained but if, if for example things like optimism you know you mentioned optimism as a characteristic if that if we consider that to be a trait or innate then some would argue that there are aspects of resilience that are innate or, or trait based but I, I would say fundamentally we all have the capacity to develop resilience and for me then as a result resilience is a is something that we can can be trained practiced and developed over time um, and then and the bit about the reason I'm, I'm really mindful of using the term resilient is because for me, we, we know from a lot of the research that resilience is, I, I think he used the word dynamic, a, a process that is context specific. So it can change from situation to situation, but also resilience is time dependent. So our resilience levels can increase or decrease over time. And And, and the context example that I give is, how someone reacts and responds, let's say, in, the, in their sport context or in their performance context, in competition, let's say, might be very, very different to then how they react and respond to pressure in their personal life. 
So I think we, we need to, when, when we're using the term resilience, rather than just using the blanket term resilient as a resilient person, resilient individual, thinking about it as, as context specific. So we're here with Dr. Resilience himself, Dr. Mustafa Saka from Nottingham Trent University and Wendy Searle, the seventh woman to ski solo uh, unsupported to the South Pole. And we're talking about resilience. Now, Mus, my next question was, how do we become more resilient? But based on the answers that we've just that you've just given, based on what we've just been talking about, I want you to tell me how I should be asking that question. Yeah, really good question. <laughs> Um, for, for me, it's, 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 it's how do we, what can we do to demonstrate resilience or what can we do to develop resilience, you know, in specific contexts at, at specific time points. But yeah, that, that's how I would talk about it is how do we develop resilience or how do we demonstrate resilience? Okay, I'm going to change the question. How do we develop resilience or how do we demonstrate resilience at specific time? So can you answer that question? Imagine I've just asked you it, you know, what kind of things can we do? What do you do as a psych when you're doing resilience workshops or kind of teaching about this sort of thing uh, in order to help people develop their resilience? Yeah, so we've um, we've developed this, uh, this framework um, around developing resilience based on, on the research that we've done, but also some of the, the more practical applied work that we've done with, with teams and organizations. I'm not suggesting that these are the only three avenues, but the, the three key areas that we focus on within, within our framework is developing people's personal qualities. Very, very similar to what men, uh, Wendy mentioned um, earlier on about the qualities around sense of control, uh, flexibility, um, optimism, um, acceptance, all of those kind of personal qualities or, or what you might kind of call psychological characteristics. Alongside that, and this goes back to the conceptualization of resilience as this kind of dynamic process that's this interaction between the individual and the environment, is I do a lot of work with coaches and managers to think about what environment are they creating for their athletes and their employees. So as well as the personal qualities, we also develop uh, or we also talk about developing what we call a facilitative environment. And a facilitative environment is an environment where there is high levels of challenge and high levels of support. And then ultimately, what we argue within our framework is that if you develop people's personal qualities and you create a facilitative environment, you're more likely to have individuals develop this challenge mindset, um, which is around helping, going, going back to the, the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, um, helping people to reframe um, how they might experience pressure and stress overall. So that, those are the three key aspects, the personal qualities, uh, the environment, and then the beliefs and thoughts around the challenge mindset. And Wendy, I'm, I'm interested because you kind of, asked the question initially you know do you think it's innate or do you think it's something that can be, can be developed I'm, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on on some of this stuff as well I really think it's something that could be developed I see it all the time when I'm either working with young people or people who are doing different challenges expeditions and I think about it and it's much less scientific but I think about a staircase of resilience whereby you start with a smaller challenge and you might climb Snowden and it might be appalling weather, but you've done it as a team and you succeed and you're really buzzing. 
And then you think, oh, I could do, I didn't think I could do that, but actually I did it. And so you think, right, what's the next step that I can do that's slightly harder, slightly more challenging, but, you know, the whole idea of challenge is you're not quite sure whether you can achieve it. That's sort of the point. And then, and then you can kind of put yourself in, in that, in that next step, in that, in that next challenging situation. I think there's quite a, a lot of, I, I sort of think about, about it as being comfortable with being uncomfortable. So there's lots of situations where, you know, you are sort of wet, tired, cold, fed up. You'd really rather not be there, but then you've made some progress during the day and then you can kind of that that gives you a bit of a spurring on to, to to keep going. You've made it through the day. You're still alive, you know, and then you can you can have another go tomorrow. And the more things you do that are on that staircase of resilience, the more you realize what's possible. And when I set out on my Antarctic trip, I really had no idea whether I could do it. And I'd crossed Greenland. And after I crossed Greenland, I thought that was literally the hardest thing I've ever done I don't think I could do anything harder than that but when I went to Norway for my first ever training trip I did six days of polar training travel and I thought that was hideous that's the hardest thing I've ever done I don't think I could do anything harder than that but now now I've completed that Antarctic journey I feel scarily invincible and I think right you know this is I've achieved something that was really kind of really beyond my comfort zone what I what I thought that my abilities might be you know if I thought about it four or five years ago so it makes you think any you know really builds that idea that you 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 can achieve things even though they're you know unbelievably hard Andy I'm very curious Mustafa has just talked about high challenge high support I I haven't been to the South Pole but I imagine that when you're on your own pulling your sled behind you there's not a lot of high support there's a lot of high challenge and I'm just so I'm just curious like when you hear the terms high challenge high support did you feel you had a sense of support there or where did you get that sense of you were supported or mentally were you creating your own support? Um, how does Mustafa's research relate to your experience in that in those frameworks of high challenge, high support? Definitely high challenge without question. Um, <laughs> but the high, the support thing is interesting. So I think there were, there were two elements for me and, and one was definitely the support I had back home because yes, it was a solo expedition, but I had so many people who were either giving me morale or giving me kit or giving me money, then my family who had just been amazing throughout the kind of whole training and, and, and journey to, to the start line. So I, I definitely held them in my mind when I was skiing along thinking that I want, I want them to be proud of what I've, what I'm doing. I want, and, and I knew they were willing me on. I just knew that I had this massive support that everybody who was following it. And, and I had a bit of feedback from my exhibition manager at the end of every night, you know, if, if there'd been a specific message that someone had sent or um, text messages from my family. So I had it connected. I had my um, GPS connected to a, an app on my phone. So I'd get into the tent after my, however many hours of skiing and my nice hot meal. And then I'd, I'd connect my devices and it would, the, the messages would start pinging away. And that was without doubt the best part of the day. And the kids would tell me what they've been doing with the day and, you know, the results of the election and all the rest of that stuff. So that that was a really vital part of my my support was the, that, those those messages from home. But the, the self-support, I think, was it's 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 quite hard to kind of recall the exact feeling. It's like when someone, you know, when you just had a big meal, what it's like to feel hungry. But there was, I, I definitely had the same kind of mantras going through my head saying, you know, you can do this. 
you can achieve this at least do one more day at least do one more hour and kind of talking tricking myself into it all the time so I'd be saying things like well if you know when you get into the tent tonight you can have that um that crystallized ginger that you really wanted or and I had I had this these three tubes of Pringles and it was so far to below what the number I should have bought and so I ended up having this one tube of Pringles for the last like two weeks maybe and I, I was rationing myself to two Pringles a night and um believe me that is hard it's probably the hardest bit of the whole trip once you pop you can stop the advertising advertising. I literally can't not have Pringles in the house now because <laughs> there's, there's, there's some kind of link between that and feeling like safe and comfortable but I had these two Pringles every night that I just so look forward to and I think you know you made it through another day and I also um had on the inside of my tent you know like in prison people do a tally with five there are four dashes and a gate across it to mark mark off the days and one day really does feel quite a lot like another and the only way I could tell what day it was was because I'd written it on each of my food bags of freeze-dried food but every night when I got into the tent, I drew a heart to represent the day that had passed in a, in a sort of effort to trick myself into thinking how that I was absolutely loving it, you know, that this was this was a really enjoyable experience. And then I'd I had messages all on the inside of my tent as well, some of which were from friends and family uh, and some of which were from myself. So the friends and family ones were all quite, you know, you're amazing. We believe in you. Um, one of my friends, Polly, said, uh, choose your attitude, which I thought was really good. But my ones were a lot more like uh, your pulp gets lighter every day. Stop crying, start skiing. So I was a lot harder on myself, I think, than, uh, <laughs> than most, you know, than everybody else was. But I had all these like tips and tricks and almost like little, not quite superstitions, but routines that I had to do, which which made, you know, that, that two o'clock I'd mark the day by having a fruit pasta and I'd made, you know, and, and so I kind of just just sort of, existed through the day with these different markers and then collapsed into the tent at night thinking you've made made it through another day so you know you're you're one day closer but the the distance you know I you have to have monastic patience which I just don't so you know the, the number of days I was out there was that was that was what really really was the, the hardest thing mentally I think um just just building on um I Wendy I don't know if you would agree with my interpretation here but one of the things I talk about in terms of resilience and support is it's not necessarily about the support itself that's important, but it's about someone's perception of that support. Um, so, you know, recognizing that you have got people around you to potentially, you know, to be available for you rather than actually getting the support itself. And that and that goes back to then how we might then perceive or how we might view uh, pressure or, or stressful situations. So yeah, I, I just as, as Wendy was talking, that it just reminded me of that. That for me, it's not necessarily about the support itself, but it's about that how people might perceive support available to them. And it's interesting that I didn't actually mention any of the practical support because I had, there were multi layers of safety support with you know sat phones and trackers and all of those kind of things. But actually, that wasn't part of my answer at all. So that wasn't how I felt. That wasn't how I viewed the idea of support. Well, I think it's it's really interesting how the layers of support that you had were fruit pastels and Pringles and messages and inside your tent. Um, and those things form small incremental changes and, and demarcated each step of success. You know, every two Pringles was, you know, a little bit closer to the next two Pringles. Um, I think from a support point of view, the idea that your friend wrote, you can choose your attitude, 
that probably aligns very much so, I imagine, with uh, REBT and what Musk maybe is going to bring to the table as well from the perception side of things. You've already mentioned that. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Moss, about you can choose your attitude? Um, because as we've already seen, you treat yourself harshly, but you are treated well by others when you're being supported. Uh, there seems to be a bit of a, a difference between how we treat ourselves and how we're treated by others in difficult situations. Any insights there? Yeah, it's, it's interesting in terms of how, yeah, our, our own expectations and the expectations of others. And, and often we are actually our own harshest critic in, in, in comparison to maybe how other, others view us. Um, I'm probably not as familiar with, with REBT here as, as yourself. Um, I'm probably taking a bit more of a, um, or certainly some of the resilience stuff that we've done is probably taking a bit more of a CBT um, approach to it rather than actually drilling down at the specifics of, of certain beliefs. But yeah, no, I, I do think it's interesting what Wendy was saying that, uh, yeah, certainly in terms of our own thoughts and our beliefs are often a lot more harsh and uh, exaggerated potentially than maybe the beliefs of others. No, I'm, 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 I'm fascinated by, you know, Wendy, you've just given us a whole load of, of things that you, that you did on that trip expedition, stop calling it a trip on that expedition that kind of got you through it. And, you know, must you talked earlier about some of the things that you might do when you're working with businesses or with athletes, I, what can, what can parents do? Is it, is it something that you would work on specifically? Wendy, you mentioned, you know, you have four children. Is resilience something that you would actively help them to to build? Uh, and if so, what kind of things would you do? Um, and and must kind of same question to you, I guess. You know, when you're working with, you know, what can coaches do to help their athletes develop resilience? Uh, Wendy, I'll come to you first. I'm probably guilty of helping my children a bit too much. I don't know; they might not agree with you. But for example, <laughs> well. This is an interesting, my, my daughter wants to be an archaeologist, so she went off to get some work experience and she was staying in a tent. And uh, but it was a really wet summer a couple of years ago. And um, I, I rang her and she said, oh, yes, I'm in, a, I'm in a bed and breakfast now. And I said, what do you mean? What happened to your tent? She said, oh, um, it was really, really raining. And it, I just felt like it was a bit miserable. And there was water coming in my tent. So I phoned Papa and he he paid for a B&B. &B. And I was like, why didn't you ring me? And she said, well, I know for a fact you would have said, just get on with it. It's just a bit of water. So I think, and, and maybe it's about helping them to learn to make their own decisions about things and and supporting that. But it's it's a really tricky one. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure I've got that right. But I think more it's instilling in them a belief that they, they can achieve if that's what they choose to do. Um, but resilience wise, you know, I think I, I'm more sort of, I think probably more independence than resilience because I, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I've, I'm not sure what I could draw on that I would say with the, with the tools that I'd used if I have done that. Must you're sort of nodding your head along there a little bit. Uh, independence, resilience, what can coaches do to help athletes develop or build resilience? What, what, what kind of things might you suggest? Yeah, I um, I guess the first thing I, I would mention actually is both in terms of coaches and parents that the, the point I, I often make when I speak, speak to coaches is is to think about their own resilience first before they think about developing resilience in others. Um, and I think for me, that's okay. just a really, really important point, just, just generally speaking. Um, so yeah, think about your own resilience before thinking about how you might develop it in others. Um, and then I guess for me, uh, both parents and coaches in slightly different ways. I, I would probably go back to the 
the kind of the high challenge and high support in terms of the environment that parents and coaches are creating within their respective kind of context, whether that's in the home environment for parents, whether that's in the training environment for coaches, um, is to think about, you know, the, the, those levels of, of challenge and support. Um, the, the analogy that I give is, 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 is creating um, bumps in the road. Um, you know, I, the, the analogy with when a, the speed bumps are there in the road to help us slow down. And, and, and often, I'm sure everyone's seen this kind of uh, example where we think we think about where we are and, and, our, and, our, and our destination. And we often think it's this straight line. But often, I would say, particularly with young, young athletes and young uh, children, is often we try to create that straight line, but not necessarily create some of those bumps that are very inevitable part of anyone's journey, whether you're an athlete or, or a young person. So trying to create, obviously, they need to be appropriate, they need to be manageable, but trying to create appropriate speed bumps along the road and the support mechanisms in place to be able to deal with those speed bumps. So when, when people speed, uh, face speed bumps later down in the road, they're in a better position to be able to deal with that. And then I think for me, just one other real kind of simple uh, thing we I do with coaches and, and we've actually got a PhD student at the moment looking at parental resilience. So I'm not going to, uh, we're still in the, very much in the early stages of that, but for coaches and parents, I, I would say just the, the, um, the use of questions, you know, I think for me, the use of questions to help people to build their own self-awareness, um, I think is really, really important. So, you know, going back to the whole reframing aspect of it, questions, you know, such as, is there another way to view this situation? Um, is there any positive, is, is there anything positive you can take from this situation? What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, I think just helps, helps someone to just develop their understanding of how they're thinking, feeling and behaving in those particular situations. And slightly unscientifically again, I remembered that one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was skiing along and on hard expeditions and in general is some advice from my mum. And at the, when I was younger, I always used to think it was a bit trite, a bit naff, but she always used to say, just try your best. And I do say that to the ki my kids as well, because I think if you and when I set out on the expedition, my aim was to be the fastest woman to ever ski that route solo. And it became pretty apparent after not very many days that this was about me in Antarctica and it, I was not going to get the record by a couple of days. And a few people asked me, you know, how do you feel about having failed? And, you know, it comes back to Ms. what you were saying earlier about having failed as a cricketer. And I think it's a really interesting way of viewing it because I, I literally never think about it like that. I don't think of it as a failure because I know that I put in absolutely 100 percent effort I couldn't have done any more at the end of every day I was absolutely done in at the end of every single day I skied the last day I skied for 25 hours straight and uh just you know just to, to make it to pole and I know that I kind of left everything out there so I think if you you know if you if when you were a young cricketer if you absolutely tried your best and it didn't work out at least you can walk away thinking I, I gave everything and and that that makes it feel like not a failure but um something you tried Mus, we we heard from Wendy there. Um, a question for you, as a, as an academic, as a researcher, what's worked for you personally? You know, what's what's made you feel more resilient? No, not feel more resilient. What's made you feel like you're demonstrating resilience? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting. Wendy also mentioned about um, 
personal kind of life experiences and life kind of circumstances that certainly definitely played a role with myself in terms of having gone through uh, personal life circumstances but also just general kind of experiences in sport in academia uh, you know Wendy's saying there about the failures and the kind of the ups and downs of that I think certainly that's certainly played a role um, I think I've, I've just I've also been I've, I've developed this this capacity but in terms of my reflection has become a lot better I think uh, in terms of being able to take those lessons forward because I the question I always get is is, is resilience just about experience is it just about developing experience and I go well yes to some extent our experiences play plays in our ability to be able to then deal with future situations but experience on its own doesn't really mean a huge amount unless you actually learn and do something with that experience um so i think for me that's something that i've, I've just just got better at is using those experiences to my advantage and using those experiences to teach me what i can do better but also what i need to do to continue moving forward in the right direction what about you hugh do you feel like you're demonstrating resilience I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think at certain points, uh, you end up realizing you're not demonstrating resilience. And those are the big, <laughs> big wake up calls where you go like, oh, no, something has to change. But I suppose then that relates back to Mustafa's reflect, reflective uh, points. I think the interesting thing for me, uh, as a, you know, I'm a fan of RABT. And the idea being that I don't need, I should be having a belief that doesn't require uh, others to accept me and it doesn't require my life to be perfect and it doesn't require me for me to be good at anything. Um, so RABT focuses on the idea that you don't place any demands on yourself along those three domains. And I think when you do that, it stops taking the, taking the pressure. Uh, so seriously and it, it reduces your ability to I can't even get a f***ing sentence out here this is horrendous see I'm not coping now Pete there look what you did <laughs> well I think Hugh and I both demonstrated resilience the other week when we went on the coaching discourse podcast um, where the the premise was that we had to drink a minimum 8% beers I drank 4 11% beers and was still standing by the end of it. So I think that was my, my demonstrating resilience. If you want to check out that podcast, by the way, head over to the Coaching Discourse podcast on Twitter. Uh, the first 20 minutes are fantastic. I can't really remember the last 20 minutes, so you'll have to see for yourself. Mus, I was interested in something that you were talking about a little bit earlier on. You know, you were saying it's not just about experience. It's what you do with that experience, right? And, you know, my question was, does it does it last? Is it something that, you know, once you've demonstrated resilience, you've got your resilience badge, you've unlocked that achievement, you know, so now you're just, you, you're resilient. I think I know the answer to this question because you said it already. But, you know, is it more like a battery that constantly needs recharging? Uh, what, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think for me the, the simple answer to it is 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 no. It's not it's not something that will will last all the time. It does. It's, it is like a battery that will need recharging. And I, and I think if we take that, it, it's about recognizing. Well, exactly what. But we were just discussing previously about recognizing situations and contexts where 
your resilience levels are tested and also time points in your life where maybe, for example, your resilience levels are higher or slightly lower. If I give a really, 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 really ridiculous, simple example, I know, for example, generally my resilience in a workplace context is pretty good. I'm able to react and respond pretty well to disappointments, to rejections, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, academic work rejections, those kinds of things. But when it comes to something like DIY, um, I will, I'm, I'm absolutely rubbish. Like, like it's unbelievable how <laughs> I'm able to, 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 to deal with disappointment in one context, but to, to then to, to transfer it to another context is, is so, so difficult. So I guess, yeah, simple answer is, is no, it does need charging and it needs a recognition. I think the other thing is it needs a recognition of how you can transfer it from one context to another context. I'd be just really interested. We're, we're doing a we're doing a, a project with a PhD student of mine, actually, Wendy, with uh, David Harrison, who is looking at resilience in relation to extreme environments and uh, and people performing in expeditions. And one thing that he's looking at is people who have come back from ex- expeditions to then see in their personal life or in their work life how is that those aspects of resilience then been transferred so yeah it, it's a bit of a long-winded answer Pete. there but yeah in, in my view no I, I think it does need recharging and it needs a recognition of context as well and the transfer of context mm. i feel like i'm the complete opposite to you must in terms of uh putting ikea furniture together i mean that's what i call diy um you know, I, I, I can do that all day long uh whereas in my work life i just throw my toys out the pram um wendy what do you <laughs> What are your thoughts on this? Have you managed to do that to transfer some of the the sort of resilience that you've built from your experiences to other areas, other domains in, in your life? How, how does that work? I, I'm going to disagree from a personal perspective. So I have the, I have this this moment when I saw the South Pole and I knew I was going to succeed and all those hours and days and years of fundraising and training and getting up at 5am and lying in ice bars all kind of telescoped into this one and the 42 days on 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 skis into this one single moment of you're going to succeed you've cracked this and even now however many 18 months on when I think about that moment I feel euphoric I can withdraw I can draw on those feelings I feel again the kind of feelings of success of uh, happiness of relief all of those things you know all sort of bound up in it was all worth it because look, you know, look that look at this amazing thing that, you know, the expedition has been a success, and I I can draw on that and still draw on that quite regularly, and I I often think well I can do that, and my other my other love is skydiving as well, so if I have like a big presentation to make or a difficult conversation to have or a training session I don't want to do, you know I think well I I skied to the South Pole I jump out of airplanes for fun, you know I can do this, so I did this therefore I can do this. And it's almost like a little reverse PTSD where this, this moment was so amazing and so important in my life that I feel like I can keep going back to that. And I don't, I mean, it's 18 months, perhaps isn't very long, but I don't feel like I've got to go back and recharge. In fact, it's the opposite. I draw on that all the time as, you know, and, and I definitely do not have my shit together. Sorry about saying the swears, but, you know, <laughs> but what I know is that whatever life throws at me, I will be able to cope with it. And so that's how I kind of, that's how I feel about my own resilience. Out of interest, Wendy, do you do you consciously draw on that? You kind of, yeah. I just want, I'm just interested to know: Do you consciously actually decide that you're going to be drawing on those previous experiences? The, re- the reason I the reason I ask that is because 
I don't know, Pete, from your experiences with, with, with students, I, I just find students really interesting that when, when they've come into university, they've, a, a lot of our students have come from, from some very difficult personal backgrounds. But, and then when they're trying to complete university work, they don't actually realize some of the skills and uh, strategies that they've used in their personal life to then transfer to then trying to then complete or do good university work. So for me, I, I don't think that transfer is always guaranteed. In your particular case, it seems that you've used that transfer and done something with it. So it's just, yeah, just my thoughts in relation to that. Yeah, I think... Um... I think I do consciously draw on it sometimes if it's a particularly difficult thing. I, I took up mountain biking in during lockdown and it's been it's been an adventure of its in and of itself and I've had a few crashes and things but before I do a jump that I don't you know my everything in your brain is telling you don't do that this is this is a, a, a terrible idea but you I kind of talk to my talk myself into it by saying you know look at what you've done if you can't just do this little jump you know you, you you can definitely do anything you decide that you can do and uh you know and, and we talked before about um you know how you kind of come to these this resilience and I I, I really want to check my privilege there because I am you know um, and, and a white middle reasonably middle class um middle-aged cis woman with access to networks that I've built myself but the wherewithal to build those networks to get funding and you know, access the right kind of training and everything. But nevertheless, it's it's definitely not been an easy journey. It's definitely been challenging something that I had to put something into every single day for for years on end. So, um, you know, I think that it's, uh, yeah, something that I would definitely draw on. So one of the interesting concepts that I've seen is the idea of motivation porn or inspiration porn. Um, and apparently this is rife within education systems whereby there's a picture of somebody who's disadvantaged or disabled with a phrase beside it, the only, the only disability is a bad attitude or what's your excuse? The point being that people use this idea of someone else has achieved, therefore you can achieve. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's not a great thing for the disabled community and I work within para, Paralympic sport and this is one of the things that is a real problem. I'm curious, like the idea of resilience needs nuance and how can people promote resilience and maintain the idea of having nuance within that if they're a practitioner must? When when do we overdo it um, or when do we seek to have too much resilience? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one here. Um, I guess for me, when, yeah, it's, it's the difficulty, as you said, to, to make sure that resilience is evidence-based, but at the same time, making sure that it's something that people can understand and, and people can actually use and, and, and practice um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a practical way. I guess for me, one thing that I do a lot in a lot of the resilience uh, training workshops, webinars that I, that I tend to do is a really important bit at the start where you talk about firstly what resilience is in a real real practical sense but drawn on obviously some some evidence-based and academic literature but the other aspect that I try to do alongside that is also talk about what resilience is not um, and for me though put, putting those two things together are, for me are really really important and and then 
I then try to get people to then think about examples or behaviors or things that you would then potentially see that might indicate whether or not someone is demonstrating resilience or not and use use that kind of conversation to then move the d- discussion in that sense. So the one example that I often give is, you know, if, for example, you were to see someone crying in the dressing room. Now, some people might say that within crying in a dressing room, actually, that's probably an il- illustration of someone not demonstrating, you know, very high levels of resilience. And then the conversation goes, well, I've mentioned in some of my, my uh, bit at the start to say, actually, resilience is not about showing no emotion. It's not about suppressing that emotion. It's actually taking the time to actually understand, accept and process that emotion. So I think for me, it's, yeah, using situations and illustrations with some of that really good evidence based around what resilience is is not. And then to have that open and honest conversation. And for me, that's that's the most important starting point with all of this is, is the open and honest conversation about what do we mean by the term? What don't we mean? And what are we looking to see and I think Pete, you asked this question: What what are we ultimately looking for people to 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 do as a result? Um, and for me, that that's a for me, it seems to be a good starting point in terms of all of that. Wendy, you've obviously been, um, I suppose, as you mentioned, crying throughout the journey uh, in your trip, and you experienced a lot of strong emotions. Um, was there any points where you thought maybe you were being too tough on yourself, and you know, overdoing it? What are your views there? I'm pre- I probably am my own worst critic, but that's what that's what drives me on. That's what gets me out of the tent in the morning. Things like, come on, you know, there are other people that are much worse off. You chose to do this. The conditions aren't that bad. And in a kind of Pollyanna-ish sort of way, I always manage to find something about the situation that was good, regardless of how bad it was. So even when I was you know that it was uphill it was into wind it was complete whiteout so you literally can't see anything beyond the end of your skis so you're relying totally on your compass bearing which is on a chest mount uh so you're looking down and I had these goggles that like continually fogged up so I had this tiny little gap in my goggles that I was sort of craning my neck down to see to see the compass bearing and I was skiing along for 11 hours like that and actually I was thinking well at least the surface is firm you know at least I'm not sinking into the the snow on with my polk and it's almost like I had to keep those things going as a bit of a bit of a mantra those positive positive messages to myself to say you know come on get a grip and that's actually much more effective when I in when I'm talking to myself than oh you know you've had a really tough day you know that that must have been really hard I would never say that to myself Rightly or wrongly. Just, just Hugh, in terms of your the point that you were mentioning about too much resilience, I was just really interested to know Wendy's thoughts on this. So for me, one of the dangers, I know we're going to talk about some of the dark sides of resilience in terms of uh, later on potentially, but for me, one of the issues when maybe, when maybe too much resilience is a bit of an issue is, for example, people then may persist, overly persist, when actually the goal is genuinely going to be unattainable. And the example I had in mind, and Wendy, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but, you know, you hear stories of, for example, Mount Everest, people are kind of trying to summit Mount Everest to the extent that they're actually climbing over dead bodies. Now, does that then become really quite dark in the sense that you're trying to persist when you know that the goal is just not going to be attainable? Just, yeah, it, it was just a, uh, a comment that you mentioned there about too much resilience and, and, and potential dangers of that. 
Sure. Well, I mean, we, we, we'll talk about that now, seeing as we're on it. Um, you know, we, we, we talked, we did talk about it a little bit earlier, the idea that there's this dark side to resilience. And the sports psych world in particular is, is proliferated with things like resilience and grit and toughness. And we, we've talked about this on the podcast before. You know, is, is there a, a we kind of just said, but is, is there a dark side to that? Is there, you know, that, that idea of too much resilience? Musk, can you, can you kind of carry on explaining what you were, what you were saying a little bit before? Yeah, I guess for me, the, the, there are two aspects of the dark side of the uh, resilience. I think for me, uh, one aspect of the dark side is um, when we when we talk about resilience, we put a lot of emphasis on the individual to do something about their resilience. So for me, there, there is a dark aspect of that, that there is an element of victim blaming there. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, whether or not you're working in you know, a university, in a workplace, and we're telling our employees to be more resilient, we're then to some extent ignoring the negative conditions that are being created within that particular workplace. I know there's been a great uh, commentary by David Oliver in the uh, British Medical Journal about the NHS. You know, we're saying, saying doctors and nurses to be more resilient, but we're not recognizing the fact, according to David Oliver, and this was pre-COVID, mm-hmm. about the fact that the NHS is understaffed, underfunded, you know, etc. So I think for me that that's one element of resilience that we've just got to be really careful about, that it's not just about the individual. Um, it's also about thinking about the environmental and cultural conditions. But going back to the point I made previously about the dark side and, and too much, it was it was just a point to make about whether or not too much resilience uh, puts us in a position where we then become overly persistent in unattainable goals. Um, and I guess the example I, I was giving then would be just great to get Wendy's thoughts in terms of expeditions and um, you know people summiting Mount Everest having to, in some cases, climb over dead bodies. And again, I don't know if that's just my where I've heard it from or if that's actually a genuine thing. Um, and actually, is there a time that actually someone who demonstrates res- resilience recognizes, actually, I'm not going to be able to do this, so let me change my tact and go in a slightly different direction. So that, that was just one other point. And then, yeah, I think the other, the other issue is that we, if someone who demonstrates lots of resilience on a regular basis – do they get, become too tolerant to any adversity that they that they face? So yeah, sorry, quite a few bits and pieces in there, but yeah, I hope uh, yeah, in, interested to hear what what Wendy has to say. I think the Everest example is a really interesting one because that's certainly something that not just on Everest, but the expeditioners and people who the sort of self selectors who go on those kind of trips, they want to achieve, they want to succeed, and anything less than getting to the summit is considered a failure regardless of whether that's because of weather conditions or any other thing but I don't think that's necessarily about resilience I think that's a little bit like a hot-headedness a little bit like well I've come this far I'm gonna I'm gonna finish the job or you know you don't tell me what I you know where I can and can't go all those kind of things perhaps permeate more than that it's just about resilience because they've got as far as you know, wherever they've got to, that's got to have taken quite a lot of resilience in the first place. And I don't think that's kind of in question, but it's, it's comes back to the element of resilience. that's about flexibility. So, okay, you might not make the summit that day, but can you come back another year? Can you choose a different 8,000 meter uh, summit? Can you um, just kind of, as you say, frame it differently. So it's just about the learning experience that you, that you that's come from not getting to the summit. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's down to the resilience factor, the whole the whole sort of Everest or, or not, but um, too much resilience. I don't know. I think there's that bell curve of stress, isn't there, where, you know, you're, you, you, you need a bit of stress. Um, and I definitely am the sort of person that, that thrives on a bit of stress. 
And so maybe that's another sort of personality thing about about sort of doing these big expeditions and big challenging challenging things. Um, I struggle to recognise when I'm when it's too much, and then things sort of start to. I just I feel like I've got lots of spinning plates a lot of the time, and you know if if you let go of one, the whole thing kind of comes crashing down. So. It's interesting, Wendy, that you mentioned that about, you know, having so many plates to spin and feeling as if they all crash down. I often use the example that every corpse in Everest was once a highly motivated person. Um, and I think the odds of, of dying on Everest is one in six, which is roughly the same, well, it's the same as playing Russian roulette. And yet I wouldn't look at anybody who plays Russian roulette as having, you know, a degree of resilience because they're taking that risk. So it's interesting to hear you talk about how people can be hot-headed and, and self-selected for these um, difficult challenges. There must be, you know, some idea about when is it acceptable to quit? When is it acceptable to make the call of actually, do you know what? These plates have been spinning for a while and I need to set some of them down and I need to actually practice some self-care. So your experience i'm just curious like how do you know when yourself you need to quit or when does it become acceptable to quit and do you have any experience of quitting other endeavors and, and how has that process been for you uh maybe it's maybe it's good or bad that i haven't had much experience of having to quit an endeavor so it, that only that only reinforces my belief that anything's possible with enough time and enough time to overcome challenges and uh Shackleton actually went as far as I think it was 97 nautical miles from pole and turned around and came back and knowing he could probably have made it but that he would have died on the way back and I'm sure that it, that decision haunted him but at least he was alive for it to haunt him and I think for me as a mother I think there's certainly a point at which I think I you know this is not more important than my kids this is not more important than, than my family that I would that would be the point at which I thought actually you know I can come back and do this another another day but if I carry on then you know I'll, I'll, I'll never see my family again so I think I think it's probably that that would be the tipping point for me I'm absolutely fascinated by by this discussion um it, it brings me back to a bit of research that I did a couple of years ago um I haven't published it yet because I haven't got the resilience to get around to actually writing it up but uh we, we did some uh, some research with some coaches and it's it's about the difference in the terms that we're talking about here so we're talking about resilience but we're talking about grit as well so you know grit is this kind of you know relentless pursuit of goals where resilience might be something that's slightly different and in this this data that we've got it suggested that having a high degree of resilience might actually have been protective against their burnout whereas grit was perhaps the opposite so for coaches who were uh, displaying these what we call entrapment profiles, so they were kind of in the job because they felt like they had to, high degree of stress, don't really want to be there, yet have high levels of perseverance, really want to keep going, keep going, keep going, pressured to keep going and keep going. They're the ones that experience burnout. Whereas coaches who had that resilience, like that seemed to be protective uh, against burnout. So just really fascinated with this discussion here that, that resilience seems to be, well, I don't want to say a good thing, but it seems like we're talking about this grit, this relentless pursuit that can be perhaps more damaging. Um, I, I don't know what you what you kind of make of that. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I don't I don't know whether or not um, I don't know if this is backed up by by any research. I guess for me, whenever I I, I talk about resilience, I, I put self awareness really at the heart of that. And I, I don't know whether or not with with the notion of grip about that kind of the passion and pit perseverance for for long term goals is that at the expense of not recognizing when things are um, detrimental to your well being. Um, it kind of etc so for me yeah resilience at the heart of resilience for me is about self-awareness um, so yeah I think I, I can see those are really really interesting findings what you've just described and I can see potentially why why I, I provide a potential explanation for that but yeah I haven't got any research data so to speak to, to back that up but uh, you know again I think it just sort of demonstrates the uh, the amount all of these different terms that are out there you know the grit, the growth mindset, the mental toughness, the resilience. And I suppose there's, there's a bit of an argument to say, and, and Wendy, I don't know how aware you are of kind of all of these terms that get thrown around there, but you know, there's an argument to say that every couple of years we get something new, like psychological safety, right? Is the sort of flavor of the month for a little while. And then it's onto the next thing, onto the next thing. And, you know, as, 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 um, like, what, what would you say to that? as somebody who's involved in sport, somebody who's involved in, in the research, um, like what, what, what do you make of all of these different terms that get thrown around? I do, I do feel that even though there are terms that are what you call the kind of the flavors of the month, I, I, I still do think that shouldn't, um, that shouldn't, it doesn't necessarily mean then that there's not, it's not valuable research in those areas. Um, because I, I guess the point I, I mentioned, I, because I do to some extent feel a little bit sorry for the likes of Carol Dweck and, and Angela Duckworth. I'm sure they've made lots of money on the back of what they've done. But at the same time, they, they, they probably did not expect that their research would have been going to be used in such, you know, in schools and in education and in workplaces and in sports. So I do feel that's the responsibility of, well, I say us as a psychology community, but also the responsibility of of organisations who are using this to actually understand and and look at the research. Look at the there are, for example, with grit as an example, there is quite a lot of positive you know research that talks about uh, some of the positive aspects of, of it. But actually, there is some research that talks about some of the issues around predictive validity and whether or not you know that there are some other research that is taking a bit more of a negative spin but I think we need to be a little bit more balanced look at look at both sides uh, and also not just not just throw that research out just because it's a a term that's being used and I, I use the the most recent example of psychological safety you know Amy Edmondson's done some brilliant research in this area um, yes it's not been applied to sport yet and we need we need that context specific knowledge but um, I think we need a little, in my view anyway, we need a little bit more balance. Wendy? I wondered how much, Ms, you agree with that it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, resilience, and it's about self-perception, because I think of myself as being a really resilient person, therefore I'm resilient. See what I mean? Yeah, in- interesting. Um, I think, yeah, in terms of how we view ourselves, how, how we view our ability to deal with, with pressure and stress, I think then automatically, and I think that, again, I don't know, Wendy, would you say that that's come from prior experiences? Do you think that that has kind of uh, confirmed your beliefs then in terms sure. of how you might? Totally. So I think for me that, that I think, yeah, it kind of leads back into that experience and learning bit and, and also people being able to 
to use that those experiences to their advantage. I think that's the other thing is I think probably people have experienced quite a lot, but actually not realise what skills that that might have taught them or what they might have developed through those experiences. Um, and it's maybe just honing some of those reflective skills. I think as part of that. So you're listening to 80% Mental, the greatest podcast in the entire universe. Um, we're here with Wendy Searle and Dr. Mustafa Sarkar, and we're talking about all things resilience. Uh, if you're enjoying what you're listening to so far, please don't forget to subscribe. You can do that at our website, 80percentmental.com, uh, or you can follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast. We're on Instagram as well, uh, at 80%mental, all words. So you can follow us there, share, like, subscribe, do all those good social media things and get in touch with us as well. You know, what are your thoughts on resilience? What do you think it is? How have you demonstrated resilience? Let us know what you think about what you're hearing from Wendy and Musk. It's been a fantastic episode so far. Um, Musk, I want to come to you with uh, another question now, because I know that a lot of trainee sports psychs, a lot of MSc students uh, listen to the podcast as well. So actually probably a good time to give a shout out to the MSc students because um, I know that a few of our colleagues have recommended the podcast so thank you to them uh, and yeah big shout out to any of the MSc sport and exercise psychology or psychology students who are, who are listening but this is a question for them really and I want to ask you what's the difference between resilience and let's say stress related growth for example, because, you know, I look at the models and the flow charts and I see a lot of the same types of concepts with some different labels attached. How do we make sure as students, as researchers, that we're differentiating between concepts which are sometimes actually pretty similar? Yeah, really good question, Pete. And actually, we um, with colleagues, uh, Dr. Dan Brown and Dr. Karen Howes, we actually wrote a, a book chapter um, specifically around um, untangling the concepts of growth, resilience and thriving. And we had, the title of the book chapter is actually Growth, Resilience and Thriving, Makes a sense. Jangle Fallacy. It, within the book chapter, we talked about three key areas, I guess, in terms of some of the similarities and differences between growth uh, and resilience. Um, and the three key areas were related to the necessity, so to speak, to experience adversity. Um, because according to conceptualizations of resilience and growth, as some sort of stressor or adversity needs to be present for someone to then be able to be shown to be demonstrating with resilience, whereas with thriving, um, adversity may or may not be present. The, the second area uh, was specifically around some of the processes and mechanisms that might underpin resilience, growth, and, and thriving. So I think we've talked about this from a resilience point of view. One of the key kind of underpinning uh, mechanisms is around challenge appraisal or what we, you know, we've, we've kind of now labeled kind of the challenge mindset. With growth, what's really interesting with growth is that because of the fact that often with growth, there is a, um, a necessity uh, in terms of the experience of some sort of adverse or traumatic event, a lot of the, a lot of the um, mechanisms relate to people's shattering of their beliefs, their schemas, their values, and their identity. So that, that, that process of those shattered beliefs, 
values and identity is a really, really key aspect of the growth process. Whereas for resilience, that's often not, not so much the case. And then lastly, it relates to the level of functioning. So normally with resilience, and we've talked about this earlier on, is, is resilience is about the ability to maintain functioning uh, when you're under pressure. Whereas with growth, you might actually, it might actually lead the uh, adversity um, or, or the potentially traumatic event might actually lead to higher levels of functioning. Um, in, in, in various different kind of formats, whether that's a greater appreciation for life, a recognition of new possibilities or enhanced sense of relationships as, as a couple of examples. So for me, P, those are the three kind of key areas in terms of similarities and differences. The necessity for a stressor or an adversity to be a, a prerequisite, so to speak. Um, the processes and mechanisms that underlie um, resilience and growth. And then the, the differences in terms of the levels of functioning. You know, you, you kind of use the terms adversity and uh, traumatic experience there. And I know there's been a fairly heated discussion on the use of the word trauma on uh, on Twitter a few a few months back. But, you know, t- talk to me about that, because I think a lot of people think when we talk about this idea of adversity, we are talking about really traumatic events. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, um, I guess in, in, in terms of growth, actually, there are different terminology depending on the different, I guess, kind of initiating event or circumstance so what we've argued in some of our work is that if you're talking about a a stressor a day-to-day and again often when we're talking about stressors it could range from something that's relatively mundane day-to-day to something that's obviously very very extreme but when we're using the term stressor and probably on the on the slightly kind of lower end of the con- severity continuum we would probably argue talking about you know uh, using the term stress-related growth However, when we're talking about adversity, um, again, there was, a, there was a specific term in relation to growth, which is around adversarial growth, uh, growth following adversity. Whereas I think what we've got to be really careful about is then when we're using the term trauma, um, and there's obviously, you know, very, very, you know, diagnostic statistical manuals, really, really kind of clinical term, what that trauma is, we need to be then making sure that we're referring to post-traumatic growth. So growth following trauma, because again, the, the mechanisms and the processes that underlie these different aspects of growth, depending on the type of event that is experienced, whether it's a stressor and adversity or trauma, uh, will then uh, will then necessitate using those different terms. Because I think the issue is researchers are using different, they're using terms interchangeably. So I think, yeah, I think it's just getting really getting it really clear as to if we're talking about a stressor, preferably using the term stress-related growth. If we're talking about adversity, we're talking about adversarial growth. If we're talking about trauma, uh, the correct terminology there would be post-traumatic growth. Musa, I really appreciate that answer. And I think that will be really useful for a lot of the uh, students who are listening because those things can be tricky uh, to, to kind of differentiate between. And like you say, people use them interchangeably. So yeah, really appreciate you kind of disentangling all of that for us. Uh, Hugh, what are you, what are you making of, of, of kind of what, what Musa is saying there? I, I want to draw people's attention, first of all, to a paper that Musa wrote called Developing Individual and Team Resilience in Elite Sport research to practice 2020 um and it's a cracking paper um it's a paper i would recommend for our uh people who are studying sports psych or also coaches and i've sent it to coaches because it contains um 
a proliferation of just useful terms and strategies and, and tips and tactics uh, about applied practice. And it's kind of like a jumping off point for people. Um, at the same time, though, like I, when I read it, I kind of thought, yeah, it's got some RIBT in here because I talked about the ABCs. It also had a really interesting concept known as VUCA, volatility and certainly complexity and ambiguity, which is a byproduct of multi-warfare, which sits under the domain of complexity theory and systems theory. And I'm just kind of curious, and is resilience becoming like a catch-all term for psychology? Because when I read that paper, I thought like, none of this is resilience. It's all things that might contribute to resilience. Um, so yeah, I was just kind of thinking, you know, Musk, what's your opinions on that? Like, is is resilience as a construct getting too broad? Is it a massive, massive thing? And also, you know, you're a researcher in that. And I'm curious, like, do you have visions of creating a direction within the research for the future? Like, what does the next 10 years uh, look like in, in terms of your research within resilience? Yeah, I think um, I think one thing I, w- I want to mention is that when it comes to res- resilience, and I think you made a really interesting point about what resilience is, but then also what contributes towards resilience. And I think we talked about this at the start when when Wendy also mentioned some of those characteristics, which I would send say is that that's the kind of the makeup aspect of it, but it doesn't actually define what actually resilience is. Um, and then similarly, you know, like you had like you had said, I don't claim or I don't think anyone has really claimed to say that some of the principles that we've discussed within some of our frameworks around resilience are new ideas so to speak I guess the way that it is new is that what we're what we're saying is that how are some of these principles uh, or, or how are some of these concepts specific in relation to an individual's ability or a team's ability to react and respond to pressure so it's not, you know, REBT or, you know, CBT, for example, around the challenge mindset um, with a with the ABCs, for example, normally the A stands just for the activating event. Uh, from, an, from a resilience point of view, I think that A has then been framed as as adversity. So I think what 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 which what we kind of I think what has been done with the resilience uh, concepts is is not to say that these are all new new areas, but to try to apply some of this in the, in the context of how people react and respond to pressure. Uh, the the other example is there is around the personal qualities. Some of those people might recognise those as you know uh, the PCDs, for example, in relation to some of Dave Collins's work. But again, it's just thinking about how do those personal qualities. Let's say, for example, motivation. We know that that's a really important personal quality when it comes to resilience. Motivation itself is not a new area or a new concept, but how motivation contributes to how someone might react and respond to pressure. So one of the things that we talk about is self-determined motivation and that having an impact about how people view pressure. So if someone is self-determined in their motivation, they're more likely to view pressure as an active choice rather than a sacrifice, for example. And I think Wendy briefly mentioned about that a little bit as well. In the context of teams, again, we talked a lot about, you know, transformation and shared leadership. Transformation and shared leadership have been talked about so much. But in the context of resilience, let's say, for example, shared leadership, what we found is that sharing the leadership spreads that ownership and accountability, particularly when teams go through difficult or challenging situations. So it's the, it's the role that these characteristics or concepts play 
in the context of how people react and respond to pressure. Because if we go back to the fundamental of what resilience is, is the ability to withstand pressure, the ability to maintain functioning when you're under pressure. So that's probably, and I guess the, the, the last aspect in relation to the catch-all nature is, yes, resilience is, and I think this is really important, resilience is a multifactorial and endeavor. So if you just focus on people's personal qualities, you will be able to develop resilience to some extent, but probably not a huge amount. If you just develop um, on REBT or the challenge mindset stuff, again, you'll get another layer. If you focus on the environment, you'll get another aspect, but you want to be focusing on those collectively, I guess, to get the, the most comprehensive way of developing resilience, I would say. So for me, that's, the, that, that's hopefully addressed the catch-all question. Yeah, so to do a good job, uh, a sports psych to make somebody resilient needs to focus on everything from personal qualities right up to team dynamics and systems uh, and how they operate with and the mindset of each individual. It's, yeah, it's it, de- it depends on it depends on what level you're focusing on. If you're focusing on the indiv- individual level, I think there are certain things that you might prioritize. If you're focusing on the the team and organizational level, there'll be obviously other other aspects. And I guess I, I've I've heard this being talked about before as well. That certainly when it when it comes to resilience and and taking that kind of comprehensive approach, um, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. I would say in in relation to that, that you know, all of these links add up to one another. And actually, if you break one of those links, you might not necessarily then develop resilience comprehensively. Um, so it's just, yeah, I, w- I would say that n- not not at all arguing that any of these things are, are new, but they are, it's thinking about how they can be useful in terms of someone's role in reacting and responding to pressure. Cool. So what about the research? Where is that going for you over the next 10 years? Um where is resilience uh, heading for you? Yeah, I think I think that's really really interesting. Uh, lots of different avenues. I think we've talked about a couple of those needs so far. I think firstly, definitely the need for longitudinal research. I'm sure students would say, you know, that, that, how many times do we see that at the end of a of a paper the, about talking about the need for longitudinal research, but no one actually end up doing it. Certainly, if, if we if we're talking about resilience as something that's dynamic, something that's contextual, something that can change over time, and but we're only investigating resilience at one time point we're not really doing resilience justice if we're being completely honest um i think for me from a sporting point of view i get uh, this asked a lot from coaches is resilience in youth sport a lot of the the data that i'm or research that i'm extrapolating downwards i don't know what what is it downwards it's not uh, extrapolating is it it's, it's, it's the other way um interpolating i'm interpolating yeah um you know i'm we're using adult adult data to then potentially make some conclusions based on what we should be doing with 13 14 15 year olds but we I'm, we're doing that wrongly you know I, i'm doing that but we're doing that wrongly so we just need we, we need far more research at the youth level to understand how resilience can be developed let's say all the way from you know age 10 all the way up until the 18 i think i think the youth aspect of it is something that's really not been explored at all whatsoever and then i guess we're now at the stage if we if we if we start to get some more longitudinal data and if we start to get some more youth data we'll hopefully then be at the stage where we can do some intervention work i think for me that's where some of the resilience work hasn't got to quite yet is um some i guess that the combination of being evidence-based and rigorous but at the same time being practical for practitioners to be able to actually use some of this in in practice so 
we've proposed frameworks, we've suggested ideas, but we haven't, I've not seen anyway, to my knowledge. Uh, oh no, in fact, there is one, uh, Jolan Kegler's from the Netherlands uh, has done some some work around this. Uh, but apart from that, not a huge amount of intervention work. So for me, those are three three areas, Long, longitudinal work, more work uh, with youth and, and also intervention work. It's interesting you say about uh, intervention work. Uh, Seligman did the Soldier Resiliency Programme and one of the biggest criticisms that I've heard of that is if you chuck a load of millions of pounds at people, things tend to get better. Um, and that the program itself isn't replicatable because, again, you know, it's it's a specialist situation. And again, there's so much money involved. How do we actually take anything out of that that's useful? So I suppose my my question is, like, what's your view on, on Seligman's Soldier Resiliency Program? And, you know, do you have any critiques of that? Because I'm sure there's bound to be students here sitting thinking they're, this is gold dust for their essays. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really good question actually because I use I use Seligman's program quite a lot, particularly when I talk about um, the challenge mindset. And and I think there's it's actually one of the books. It's called the Resilience Factor, and it's actually one of the books I do recommend purely because it's one of the few resilience books that's got a good blend between re- like good, having a good evidence base, but also being very very practical. Having said all of that, I have seen some criticism around the program. You mentioned about the money. I I don't know. In terms of the, the money aspects of it, the, the one thing I, I, I say positively about the money is the fact that that this shows that there was buy-in all the way from, from the Congress, all the way from, okay, from senior management, all the way throughout the organization to put money behind it. I, I take the point that just because you put that money behind it, is there kind of a conflict of interest from that point of view in terms of then how they evaluate that program? Um, so I think that there's an issue certainly with that. The, the main issue I think I have with that program um, from what I've read and what I've seen is they've very much taken the train-the-trainer approach. Uh, so Martin Seligman, Karen Rivich, all the way you know, from University of Pennsylvania have obviously provided that program. But then, this, then I think my, my understanding is that then soldiers and, and senior people within the U.S. Army, then there's a train-the-trainer type approach. And I think there's some some issues associated with that in terms of the level of sophistication that that can be done when you take that approach, um, potentially the, the the competence to be able to do that training as, as a, you know, as a trainer-trainer kind of thing. So for me, that would be my main aspect of it. It's, as you said, the, the replicability, the objectivity in terms of evaluation, but also in terms of um, yeah, the, the train the trainer uh, idea, and, and is that the is that is that the the best way to 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 to, to train people to, to develop the program? Yeah, I can imagine having a command and control style structure where you create a process and procedural approach, uh, and hand that into a complex situation where you're dealing with people's thoughts and emotions doesn't really last after the fifth iteration of train the trainer is yeah. bound to fall fall to pieces a little bit um thanks very much must i didn't mean to get in so pointy there but uh <laughs> you know you definitely uh stood your ground and answered some great questions for us that's wonderful Well, the only thing left then is to thank our guests for coming on the podcast today. We've heard some absolutely fantastic insights from both Wendy and uh, Mustafa uh, about resilience. Uh, really, really interesting to hear all about your experiences, Wendy, um, and your expedition, not trip, to the South Pole. 
uh, and I love the uh, the two Pringle minimum. Um, well, two, two Pringle maximum, I guess it would be. Uh, that, that kind of kept you going throughout there. So, uh, Wendy, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real uh, treat having you on. Um, really appreciate you joining us today. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I learned a whole lot of stuff, maybe about myself, maybe about sports psychology, a little bit about DIY as well. So thank you. It's, it's been a fascinating discussion and I can't honestly pretend I have all the answers. I, I know what's worked for me and, and has kind of got me to this point. But there's that Robert Frost poem that talks about I took the path less travelled and that has made all the difference. And choosing to do the thing that is more challenging, even though you know it's going to be harder, that it's going to be more difficult, that it's going to be more awesome. uncomfortable, Thank you. And, um, is a way that you can... If you want to uh, follow Wendy on Instagram, we'll put uh, your details in and, the description for the episode and your website as well, to, which is... Can you remind us of your website? <laughs> but absolutely worthwhile checking that out. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's Southpaw And Dr. Resilience, Dr. Mustafa Saka, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, really, really glad that you could join us on the podcast. Uh, It's your specialist area. So who else would we ask to come on uh, this episode? Thanks for for the invitation. Yeah, and it was really, really great to hear, um, you know, Wendy's Wendy's stories and and experiences in in relation to, uh, to this topic area. So, yeah, no, great. Thank you. Well, we've been talking for almost two hours. Um, and I, I think that this has been uh, a really, really fascinating episode, getting the insights uh, from Dr. Mustafa Saka and Wendy Searle. Um, we've talked about the definition of resilience because it is, it's one of those terms that's thrown around. So we've talked about this idea that it's the ability to withstand pressure, the ability to maintain functioning under pressure. That's what resilience is. We've talked about developing the capacity uh, to sustain in environments, you know, like sport, like business, where actually sustainability is quite a difficult thing because the environment itself isn't conducive to that sustainability. We've talked about that before as well in in different episodes. Um, But we've talked about how people might develop their resilience from a number of different levels, from personal levels, from organizational levels as well, and the need to... um, have a holistic approach to developing resilience. It's not just down to the individual and it's not just down to the organization. We've talked about some of the concepts that are actually quite similar uh, and Mustafa did a really nice job of pulling apart some of those concepts, things like stress-related growth, post-traumatic growth. And we talked about the dark side of resilience as well and some of those other terms that get thrown around like grit and toughness and perhaps some of the negative impacts that too much resilience or too much grit, if you want to phrase it that way, might have. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Uh, I know that I've learned a lot. Uh, If you have enjoyed it, please do listen to some of our other episodes. You can subscribe at 80percentmental.com. 80% mental is all words. So get in touch. Let us know what you think. You can contact us on the website or on Twitter at EPM Podcast. We're also on Instagram at 80% Mental. Again, all words. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the episode and we will see you next time. Well, we won't see you. Because it's a podcast.